Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. God is here this morning. Heaven is here this morning. And we're glad you're here and we're glad you're joining us through our live stream ability as well. Before we get into Job chapter 2, and that's where we'll be this morning, Job chapter 2, just a reminder that starting Wednesday night, for the next four weeks in the book of Genesis, we're going to be looking at the story of Noah. And the story of Noah, to me, is one of the great stories of the Bible. And there's so much in there for us today as well uh, that can encourage us. And, and challenge us in our walk with God. So I hope for those of you that can join us on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock right here for the next four weeks as we move through Genesis, we're going to be looking at Noah. Today we're continuing our series, uh, a worship series through the book of Job, looking at the heart of worship, if you will. And it is a heart issue because worship must come from our heart. And if there's things that need to be dealt with in our heart to sort of unlock our heart of worship, then we've got to be willing to deal with those things. And that's why God led me to this series in Job, looking at it from a worship perspective. Let's remember something, that a God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. And that trials that you and I go through, pain, suffering, loss, and all of that are dangerous times for our souls. Because the Bible tells us we can become very bitter and angry during those times. We can become disillusioned with God and turn our backs on God, as many have throughout history. Uh, so sermon series like this can be dangerous times for our souls as well, because in our trials and in sermon series like this, spiritual benefit is not automatically built in. It's all on how you and I choose to respond to the trial or to this sermon series of whether we're going to truly benefit spiritually from it or not. Now, last week, we saw that the heart of worship is going to be tested, and it was certainly tested in Job's life. Here was a man that the Bible says was the greatest of anyone around him at that point. He had great wealth, he had great power, great influence, but more than anything, he was godly. In fact, God even says that there's no one like Job. He's exceptional. He is noteworthy. People like Job are rare on this earth. So we're getting context here. But then Satan appears before God, giving an account, as he and all the fallen angels need to do on a regular basis. And Satan challenged both Job and God. Satan basically said, well, God, the only reason that Job worships you like he does is because you put a hedge of protection around him. Nothing ever bad happened to him. His heart of worship doesn't cost him anything. His life of worship with you hasn't cost him anything yet. You allow something to come into his life, and you begin to let him suffer loss and pain and whatever, and he'll turn his back on you as quick as you could imagine. So God accepted the challenge. said, let's do it. You have 
my permission to go and touch the things that Job has, including Job's children. And we saw that in one day, Job not only lost all of his material possessions that he had, that made him a wealthy, powerful, influential man in his world, but all 10 of his children died in one day. And yet we saw that even through his pain, his loss, his brokenness, he turned to God and he held on to God. Even though he didn't understand, even in tremendous pain, he still held on to God. And he made this statement from his heart, a breathtaking expression at the end of chapter 1. He says, naked I came into this world, naked I'm going to go out from this world. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's sort of where we ended chapter 1. In a sense, I said, after chapter 1, it was Job 1, Satan 0. Because Job passed that test, right? But this morning, I want to begin in chapter 2, looking, first of all, at the persistence of Satan. The persistence of Satan. Because you would think, after all that Job has suffered at this point, lost all of his material wealth, lost all 10 of his children, enough is enough, right? And we understand that because we've been there at times in our life where it's like, God, enough. It just seems like things keep coming. It seems like things just keep piling up one after the other. Give me a break, God. Let me catch my breath. And there are times like that in our life. So again, another day comes, verse 1. And it came when the sons of God came to present themselves or give an account before the Lord, and Satan also arrived among them to present himself before the Lord. Again, I don't want to go over all that we went over last week, but just to bring some of you up to speed that maybe weren't here last week, Satan and fallen angels have to still give an account to God because God is still sovereign. He's still in control of everything in the universe, including all the fallen angels. So they have to give an accounting of their movements and of what's going on because they can do nothing without God allowing it to happen. So the Lord said to Satan, verse 2, where did you come from? Why are you here? State your business. Satan says, from roving about the earth, from walking back and forth across on it. And of course, that's what Satan does. He's a wanderer. He's always looking for people's lives to be able to influence and the Lord said to him again, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a pure and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Same thing God said about him in chapter 1 is the same thing God says about him here in chapter 2. And then God adds this, And he still, Satan, holds firmly to his integrity. God is affirming that Job passed the test, and he is still wholly devoted. Now God does add this. He said, you stirred me up to destroy him without reason. We need to stop and examine this because along with the persistence of Satan here, I also want to point out the sovereignty of God. What God is saying here is that, Satan, you, insta you instigated the test against him. Job didn't ask for this, obviously, or cause this. I wasn't seeking to test Job. 
But you came and you challenged Job and me because in a sense, as we said last week, Satan's challenge was also sort of a challenge to God that God, the only reason people worship you and love you and serve you and follow you is because of all the great things you do for them. Stop doing those things for a while and they won't worship you just because you're God. They only worship you because of what you do for them, you see. So God says, yes, I, I, I let you throw down the gauntlet, so to speak, and I did. I engulfed him. I overwhelmed him, God is saying. That's what the word destroy means. In fact, it's a word that is used in Genesis for the flood, worldwide flood. Basically, God is saying, yeah, he's not, God is not minimizing at all the horrific nature of what Job is going through at all. But then I want to talk about these words for a moment because I don't want us to misunderstand what God is saying here to Satan. He says, without reason. It doesn't mean that there's no purpose in it. It's that there's no apparent purpose, especially to Job and to those on earth. There is a purpose because God never does anything in our lives purposelessly. There's always a purpose for why God allows the things that he allows, though that purpose may not be apparent to us, you see. Sometimes God's purposes are incomprehensible. But however mysterious things are to us, they are never mysterious to God. And as I said last week as well, Sometimes things are so deep that even if God tried to explain it to us, we couldn't understand it or comprehend it anyway. It's beyond us. But Satan answered the Lord, verse 4, and said, skin for skin. Indeed, a man will give up all that he has to save his own life. Satan wants God to peel away everything in order for him, Satan, to penetrate down to the deepest level of Job. Because at the end of it all, Satan says, as horrific as it was for, for Job to lose his children, as horrific as it was for him to lose all of his material wealth, when it comes right down to all of us, Satan is saying, as human beings, it's all about self-preservation. And when you start to touch us physically, when you start to take our health away, that's a very sensitive issue, even for God followers, and Satan knows that. Satan knows that. And let me stop and say this as we talk about the persistence of Satan. Satan won't stop, okay? Satan doesn't get tired of attacking us and trying to harass us and cause us to start thinking bad thoughts about our God. Because that's really why he does what he does. He wants us to start thinking bad thoughts about God so that, in a sense, we turn our backs and walk away from God and stop holding on to God. Satan is a malevolent, wicked cunning creature. It's hard to think of any creature who's pure evil, but Satan is one. There is no limit to his schemes. He will do anything 
to dishonor God and to bring dishonor to those who belong to God. And failure to recognize him and what he can do in our lives is to our own peril and downfall. As the Bible teaches us over and over again, we need to be alert to the activity of Satan in our life and what he's trying to do, especially when it comes to beginning to think bad thoughts about God. That's what he did in Genesis with Adam and Eve, and that's what he has always sought to do. And that's why he's doing what he's doing to Job, because he says, Job is just going to end up cursing you to your face. That's what Satan says. Look, verse 5. He's saying to God, God, allow me to get to his deepest part, his own physical health. Extend your hand, strike his bone and his flesh, and he will no, no doubt curse you to your face. He will walk away from you and not look back. So the Lord said to Satan, all right, he is in your power. Only preserve his life. And here again, we see the sovereignty of God. Satan is given permission by God short of killing Job, which of course would give Job no chance to prove his mettle, right? So God says, all right, I'll give you permission. And again, I want to repeat this because this is really important. This is really the crux of what you and I have to deal with even as the people of God. We can never say about any situation or circumstance in our life, any trial, any pain, any loss, any suffering, that God is not in it because he is. At the very heart of it is the heartbeat of God. If we say God is not in it, then we end up just saying that God is sort of like a, a bit player or, or an extra, if you will, in the unfolding of our lives. He's not right at the center of it all. And if God's not at the center of everything in our lives, including our pain and our suffering and our loss and all of that, then he's not God because he's not sovereign. And you and I have to wrestle with that. We have to come to grips with that. And that's one of the things that Job is going to have to come to grips with and wrestle with throughout this story in his own life. It's not only the persistence of Satan and the malevolence and cunning and wickedness of Satan, but also the sovereignty of God, that God is allowing this to happen without any apparent reason to Job. Job doesn't understand. And we said last week, and we saw last week, that it's okay not to be okay. It wasn't like just because Job continued to turn to God and hold on to God and worship God didn't mean that he wasn't struggling. He was broken. He was in pain. He was hurting. And he still is. In fact, the heart of worship is not only being tested in chapter 1. In chapter 2, 
it's being stretched even further. Because after all that Job has already been through, enough isn't enough. Now he's going to have to suffer even more on top of what he's already suffered. And now it comes to his physical health. And again, this is a real sensitive issue even for God's people. Why? Because let's face it, if we're honest, because I've been in church all my life, the number one thing that we pray about and pray for as Christians is people's physical health. What's our prayer requests for the most part? Their physical health issues for the most part. I'm not saying there aren't spiritual things and issues that we pray about at times, but for the most part, when we're sharing prayer requests, it's people's physical health, right? So when that gets touched, when that gets affected, that bothers us because somehow along the way, we as God's people sort of had the, the, the thought that if, if I'm a follower of God, that I have a right to good health. And, and that, that I don't like the fact that God puts my spiritual benefit above my physical health and allows me sometimes to be touched in a physical way to benefit me spiritually. We don't like that. And yet that's something we have to wrestle with and come to grips with because that's exactly what's happening with Job. Notice verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he afflicted Job with a malignant ulcer from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. If you read the book of Job, and obviously we're not going to, the symptoms that Job had, it was, it's horrific. I mean, this man is physically in pain. He's got, he's got lesions all over him. He's got these, these boils, and, and, and he's, he, it's awful. He is smitten with some kind of terrible disease that covers his entire body. And now I want you to picture this, because chapter 1 portrayed Job as the greatest, most powerful, most influential, wealthiest man in his area, if you will, of the world at that time. And I want you to picture him there, and then I want you to picture him here in verse 8. Job is now taking a shard of broken pottery to scrape himself while he is sitting among the ashes. Where's Job at? He's at the landfill. He's sitting at the garbage dump. He's sitting amongst the trash of his city. He is now an outcast. He's sort of a piece of human trash in this place of discarded things. That's where Job's found himself, to go from the top pretty much to as low as a human being could go. This is Job. He's lost everything, including now his own health and, and the pitiful condition that this man is in, that he is so broken emotionally and so now suffering physically that he's literally sitting at the, at the landfill amongst the trash, and he's scraping himself with broken pieces of pottery. Can we even begin 
to think about what Job's dealing with and what he's going through and the layers of it because it keeps coming. It wasn't enough that all his wealth was taken away, all his material goods, then all of his children are taken away from him, and now his own health is completely taken away. And then we come to not just the persistence of Satan and the sovereignty of God, but the hopelessness you hear in Job's wife. Because now Job's wife enters the drama of Job. And just like Job, remember, from our mouth speaks what is from the heart, Jesus said. So the words that come out of our mouth reveal where our heart is at. And let me say, I'm not trying to be hard here on Job's wife. I'm just here to teach the text as God has revealed it. I'm not trying to minimize what this poor woman went through because she's went through the same thing Job has. In a sense, she's lost everything materially in her life as well, and she's lost all 10 of her children. I get that. Horrific. She's in a lot of pain too, right? But notice, here's her words. Are you still holding firmly to your integrity? Curse God and die. She's basically saying two things. First, what good has your faith in God done for you? Wow. And we know that she was a godly woman because of the response of her husband. Because he says, you're now talking like a person that doesn't know God. What good has your faith done you? Now, again, to be fair to Job's wife, maybe you've thought that at times in your life. Maybe you've thought that about others or others have thought that about you. Like, what good has your faith? Look, look you're a follower of God and look what he's allowed to come into your life. That's a pretty actually common expression when you see supposedly good people going through such bad things. But also in this, you hear her hopelessness in the words, curse God, which is exactly what Satan said you should do, and then die. Basically, she sees death as the only good remaining for Job. Now, we need to pause here because we live in a world of hopeless people just like Job's wife who's gotten to a place in their life where they think they don't see any good at all except death, which is why people taking their own life and suicides are at an epidemic all-time high. As I shared with you a couple weeks ago, I've been a pastor for 37 years and never done more memorial services for those who've committed suicide or taken their own life than I did this past year. Not from our church, by the way, but through being invited into those situations. In fact, even here in this area, you don't hear a lot about the young people and the high school students and even the elementary school students and the middle school students that are taking their life because they keep that 
out of the news. Folks, this is where we're living today. And here's why. Because just like Job's wife, if you get to a place where you think the only good that you see is death, that means you've lost contact or had no contact with God. Because the Bible teaches hope is only found in God. It's not found in our circumstances. Listen, if Job and Job's wife just looked at what they've been going through, you're right. Hopeless. There's no hope in what we're going through. And there's even no hope maybe to look around at others and see what hope we could find in them. But the Bible says our hope is in God. And that's why we've got to hold on to God. That's why we've even got to have a relationship with God. And we've got to have fellowship with God. Because if we get disconnected from God, then we lose our hope. And hope is the ability through God to be able to see past our present circumstances. See, people get stuck and, and they just, they, they, their, their present circumstances, as horrific as they may be, like Job, get to the place where they see nothing good beyond that. God allows us, even in the worst times of our life, to be able to look past our present circumstances, as bad as they may be, and know that there's something better coming down the road. In fact, let me show you this principle out of the New Testament book of Romans. If you'll just keep your finger in Job chapter 2 and go over to the book of Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Romans chapter 8. And look at verses 24 and 25. Here's an amazing statement. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8, 24, in hope we were saved. Wow. But now hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees, see? And all that they could see, all that she could see, was all that they had been through. She couldn't see beyond all the loss and all the suffering and all the pain. But here's verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see, then we're willing to wait eagerly for it with endurance because we know that through God, oh, there's something better that's coming down the road. But see, there are so many people today because they either have no relationship with God or no connection to God that they have no hope. Because hope is only found in God. God is the only one that can give us the ability to see beyond our present and to, to not get stuck there and to not get, you know, caught in it to the point where we just can't see beyond it at all. But God can give us that ability. And God can even give us the endurance that we need to keep waiting for it until it comes, until that change comes, until that better day comes. God can give us that ability supernaturally. So back to Job. Then I want us to see the steadfastness of Job's heart of worship. Because after his own wife says, curse God and die. By the way, is it possible 
that Satan spared Job's wife from death to be used as a tool against Job? Very possible. Very possible that that could have been the case. In a sense, the words that come out of her mouth were basically the same words that were coming out of Peter's mouth whenever he rebuked Jesus for talking about going to the cross and dying, and Jesus turned to him and said, what? Satan, get behind me. Because the words coming out of your mouth, Peter, now are not coming from God. They're not being energized by the Holy Spirit. They're coming from Satan. And in a sense, the same thing is true. The words that were coming out of Job's wife's mouth now obviously were not words of encouragement or hope or anything else. They were being used by the enemy to even make Job's situation worse, to where he really felt like he's all alone in this as far as his heart with God. And he replies to her. And his reply is, is a rejection of her words with fury in the original language. He says, you're talking like one of the godless women would do. You, you're, you're speaking like one that, that has no relationship with God and doesn't know God. And then he says this, should we receive what is good from God and not also be willing to receive what is evil or what's bad? In other words, we hold out our hands and we love it when God pours into our lap and into our lives all these blessings and wonderful things and, and, and days of good health and, and riches and material things. But he says, what if God chose to, to send other things into our life that wasn't so pleasant? Shouldn't we be equally receptive of those? By the way, these words of Job are amazing again. They're breathtaking. This implies more than just submission to God. It implies cooperating with God. Here's a statement I want to leave with you today. It is easier for us to lower our view of God than to raise our faith. It's easier for us to lower our view of God than it is to raise our faith in God. And Job, man, his heart of worship is steadfast. Even after all he's been through, including his own now physical health being taken away, and to go from the top of the heap, if you will, now to the bottom of the garbage heap, Job is still saying, if this is what God is allowing to come into my life, I'm not going to turn away from God. I'm going to hold on to him no matter what. Because through everything, that's what we need to do, even if we don't understand it. And again, Job hasn't yet been told why he's going through this. In fact, he never will. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But Job says, even though I don't understand why, God, I'm going to hold on to you because I understand I have no other alternative. If I let go of you, I'll never get through this. Because if I let go of you, I'll lose my hope. And I'll never be able to look past this present circumstance. And maybe I'll get to the same place of just cursing you and wanting to die. We'll come back in just a moment. But then I also want you to see the response of Job's friends today. And here I want us to see initially their response to Job is admirable. Now, if you know the story of Job, you know it doesn't stay that way. But I want to point, a, 
point out some admirable things here about Job's friends. First of all, Job has a few good friends. And remember through our discipleship series, we said it's not as important that we have a great number of people that we call our friend as much as it is that we have a few people in our life that we know that in the darkest, toughest times of our life, they'll be there for us, just as hopefully people know that we'll be there for them. So Job's three friends, literally in the Hebrew, closest companions, heard all about his calamity, his adversity, his pain that happened to him. Each of them came from his own country. So they lived in even in other places, not close to Job. And they agreed to meet together and to come together and to show sympathy and empathy for him and to be a comfort to him and console him. Oh, to have friends in your life that can sympathize and empathize with us who are there to comfort and console. Notice verse 12. When they gazed intently from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. Job's appearance had changed so much, probably through emotionally all that he had been through and physically all he'd been. They didn't even recognize their close friend anymore. That's how bad he looked. And they started to weep loudly. Reminds me of the verse that says we ought to be willing to weep with those who weep and to bear one another's burdens. Do you have folks in your life like that? Are you that to others? Each of them tore his robes and threw dust into the air over their heads, and they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and yet no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great, his spiritual, emotional, and physical pain, all very great. Here's what they did right. First of all, you don't need a lot of people around you, and you don't really want a lot of people around you when you're going through something this horrific, but you do want maybe one or two or three, right? And here's what they did well. They were just willing to sit there with Job and be present and not say anything. In fact, isn't it true that when they began to open up their mouth is when things went south? And I say this to encourage you because as a pastor, I've had many Christians come up to me over the years and say, I wanted to get involved with so-and-so's trial or, or the, the thing that they were going through. And, and I wanted to go, but I didn't know what to say. As if somehow as a pastor, I always know what to say or that I always have the right thing to say. Let me tell you something. Most of the time, I don't know what to say. And many times, I have learned, and I hope that this will encourage you, not to say anything, just to be there with them. You don't need to say anything, because sometimes, let's face it, what do you say? What do you say? In fact, sometimes the things that we say as Christians come out so sort of trite and contrived and packaged it's like it's just it's the verses that we're supposed to tell each other you know the Romans 8 28 so we just throw it out there because we're we think we have to say something no sometimes the best thing we can do is just sit there and weep with one another and that's what they did that's what they did and we need to commend them for that before they start behaving badly 
But I want to go back to Job for just a moment. When he says, should we receive what is good from God and not also receive what is evil? Again, Job's heart, first of all, in chapter 1 was tested, and now in chapter 2, it's being stretched. And yet Job is being steadfast in his heart of worship because he says, God, I'm just going to keep holding on to you. I don't know when this nightmare that I'm in is going to end. I don't know why I'm going through the nightmare that I am, but I am holding on to you. And I think I get a little bit of a glimpse into why Job's heart was that steadfast at this point later on in the book of Job. You can look it up later. It's a great phrase out of a great verse. It's Job 23.10, where Job says, if God chose to test me, I would come forth like gold. That's something that you and I need to hold on to. If God chooses to throw me into the furnace of affliction, I know it's for my own spiritual benefit. I know, Job says, that if God chooses to do that, I will spiritually benefit if I respond in a proper way. It will refine me. It will strengthen me. It will purify me. And so if God chooses to go in there or to throw me in there, I'm going to come forth even better than when I went in. And as we learn from the book of Daniel, when Daniel's friends were thrown into the furnace, we also know something else, right? God doesn't keep us from the fires and the furnaces, but he walks with us in the fire and in the furnace. Because God never lets go of us, even if we choose to let go of God. Again, what are we left with after chapter 2? That in everything in our life, no matter how bad it is, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't see any purpose for it, the message is hold on to God because God is holding on to us. I don't know what you're dealing with right now in your life. I don't know what you're struggling with or whatever. It's okay to struggle, by the way. It's okay to struggle. It's okay not to be okay. But as you're working through it and processing through it and moving through this maybe valley that you're going through right now, just keep a hold of God because God will never let go of you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that even with a story like Job's, God, it speaks to us very loudly and clearly because maybe we've never went through something as horrific as Job and his wife have went through in their lives, but we all have went through pain and loss and trials and suffering, God. And we've all been at that point in our life where we wondered, why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? I do believe, God, that you're in control. You are sovereign. And that even makes it harder, God, because I know that if you didn't allow this, it would never happen. 
And yet, God, I've been willing to hold out my hands and receive all these wonderful, good blessings from you all my life, and I've never refused one. So God, I'm going to also hold out my hands, and if you want to send me into the furnace of affliction, if you want to give me some pain and suffering and loss and all of that, God, I'm just going to hold on to you and, and, and be like Job, that God, if you choose to test me like that, I know in my heart that it's for my own spiritual benefit. I might not even understand it. I might not see it yet, but I trust you, God. I trust you. And I know you're with me through it all. God, would you use this time with you to just strengthen your people, to heal people, to, to comfort them, to refresh them, to maybe let them catch their breath just a little bit more, to just keep on going, God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Listen, I, God just wants us to be real with him right now, okay? So as we sing this song, just be real with God. Let him minister to you. Let him, let him heal your heart. Let him align your heart with his heart. Just let him hold on to God, no matter what, because we never walk. <laughs>